Hello, everyone, and welcome as we continue this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind is, of course, an opportunity to uh, hear some of the guests who've been on JM and the AM recently. We'll start now with uh, Daniel Finkelman. Daniel Finkelman is one of the producers of the movie Menashe, which has uh, made its mark out there. I had the opportunity, opportunity to see it, and after that I had an opportunity to speak with Daniel Finkelman about it. Daniel Finkelman and the movie Menashe on this edition of JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, many of you have heard of the movie Menashe. I saw it yesterday. Uh, it's described as the following. Deep in the heart of New York's notoriously secretive Hasidic Jewish community, Menashe, a good-hearted but somewhat hapless grocery store clerk, struggles against tradition to keep custody of his only son after his wife passes away. It was released just uh, uh, just recently on the 28th of July. It's directed by Joshua Weinstein, and it's produced by a team of producers, including our good friend Daniel Finkelman, who despite his uh, recent Hollywood success, is still willing to speak to us. How do you like that? Danny Finkelman, welcome back. To J- <laughs> well, I, knew, I knew you'd appreciate that. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nachum. It's great to be back. How are you? Baruch Hashem. Well, I saw it yesterday, and I see what everybody's talking about, and I understand why it's uh, really been playing to some wonderful reviews. I'm sure you guys are thrilled with the way people have reacted to it so far, right? Oh, absolutely. We're overwhelmed completely. <sighs> Who wrote the screenplay? Whose idea was this story? Well, the story is actually Menashe's real-life story. So Menashe Lustig who I met through his brother-in-law, Lieb Schmelzer. Yeah. He grew up in New Square, where he still resides, and he, his wife passed away. His son was taken away from him and raised by his in-laws. So almost every detail in that story is true. It's almost like a documentary, but played by actors, and he's basically playing himself so you with fi- his name. So you filmed it in Brooklyn... Uh, it's his story from New Square. That aspect of it, the majority of it, obviously, is 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 the true part. Is is true? I mean, I, I, I'm somewhat stunned. I didn't realize that it's a takeoff on an actual uh, on an actual story that happened in a Hasidic community. Um, how do you know that he could act? How do you know that Menashe could 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 take the lead role in something like this? So those who know and heard of Menashe Lustig, he's been coming out with these. Um, I don't even know how to describe them. These parody videos on YouTube that he did on his own. So he definitely has some experience, you know, with um, entertainment. I know in New Square, he was one of the lead actors in their annual Holomoid plays and whatnot. And, um, you know, Josh Weinstein, I have to give him full credit, completely believed in Menashe. As soon as he saw him, and he actually met him on a set of a music video I've done with Lipa and Menashe together. Right. And Josh was there. We were searching for lead character for this Hasidic movie. We had no idea what the story would be yet. And as soon as he saw him, he said, I like this guy a lot. And he was right. And, you know, one thing led to the other. And when we heard the story, we decided to actually make a film about it. Danny Finkelman's with us, one of the producers of Menashe. By the way, before I... Before I get carried away, because i got a million questions to ask you, people want to know till when they can see the movie. you have any idea when it's going to be available until? Absolutely. The film is going to be available for the next, I would say, two to three months, and it's coming to more and more theaters. Right now it's at the uh, Angelica in Houston Street, Lincoln Center, BAM uh, in L.A., and Jersey, and I believe two gardens starting this weekend, and then it's coming to more cities: Miami, Chicago, Baltimore, the works. I so saw. It's growing. I saw it in Angelica, so it could stay there for how many weeks? It could stay there for quite a while. Yep, it's probably going to stay there for quite a while. Wow. And allow me just to drop in that this Thursday, after the eight ten p.m. show, yeah. there's going to be a Q and A with Menasha and his brother-in-law Lisa Schmelzer, talking about the connection of. Hasidus and movies. That's in Angelica? You there, Daniel? Yes, I'm sorry. That's in Angelica? Where is it? Yeah, at the Angelica on on Houston Street. On Houston Street. Right. So this Thursday, after the 8, 10 p.m. show, a Q&A with Menasha 
and Lipa Schmelzer. Three blocks away from Mocha Burger if somebody wants to have dinner as well. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Finkelman is with us, one of the producers of Menasha. The cast, I'm curious, and I don't know how much you're willing to tell us, and I certainly don't want to make this into a spoiler alert. I don't want people to tune out because they think we're going to give away too much. But the cast, sh- should I assume the majority of the Yiddish speakers are not familiar generally with the Hasidic community, or that's not the case? No, sorry, not familiar with what? With, with, the Has- with the Hasidic community. To me, it looked... To me, it looked like actors who happened to know Yiddish or learned it, not people like Menashe who are from within the community. The only one like that was Ruben Naborski, the kid who plays Menashe's son, who was amazing, great. Josh Weinstein found him. He's one of the few Yiddishist families around the world. They're, if I could describe them are, uh, correctly, they're completely secular, non from yet, and they reside in Israel. The father is a professor, John Hopkins, actually, and they come quite often here to Baltimore. And yet they chose to raise their kids talking to them Yiddish only. <laughs> and, yeah, and when we found that that kid actually has talent, he was just the natural um, pick for this role, because unfortunately, as much as we tried and we went around to audition different kids in Borough Park and Muncie, no one, not one parent wanted to take that risk that their uh, Hasidic son would be in the movie. Wow, so, interesting. Yeah. How'd you convince the one who played the Rebbe to do it? How'd you con- if, if, if that's the fact that most of these people are from the Hasidic community, how'd you convince any of them to be in a quote-unquote movie, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, and we had actors actually coming in and then regretting and then giving us conditions. You know, we had to uh, make sure that a number of obligations are met with the film. Actually, the one that plays the Rebbe was great. He's actually uh, a cab driver. Oh, my gosh. The one who played the Rebbe really acted like a Hasidic Rebbe. Right. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I'm not to describe it. He, this Rebbe waited 70 years to play this role, <laughs> and he made his life. <laughs> I love it. Unbelievable. Um, uh, there are a couple of names familiar to me. Is, is Yoel Folkowitz the Yoeli Folkowitz that we know from the world of Jewish music? Oh, uh, no. Oh, it's a different, it's a different Yoeli Folkowitz. I was so excited when I saw the cast and I saw <laughs> a, a familiar name. Daniel Finkelman's with us. Menasha is the name of the movie. Um it, you mentioned New Square. It's no secret that not everybody in New Square is happy when stuff like this is made public, even if it's not, you know, I'm not talking about major scandals. I'm talking just about, you know, private life and how things work there. Was there a lot of opposition from the Hasidic community, especially from there? For instance, is Menasha, you know, able to survive there in his community with the release of this movie? So uh, it's a challenging question because, you know, he's still there, and I don't want to cause him more problems than he already is going through. Right. Uh, I will tell you, it's no secret that, um, you know, some of the uh, Hasidic communities oppose anything that has to do with uh, advanced technology. And But you can't fight it any longer. I mean, as it is, every tree almost very soon is going to be Wi-Fi. Right. And if we don't have proper representation, especially in the entertainment industry, giving our views and our take on Hasidic lifestyle, people are just going to find it elsewhere, right. find their passion elsewhere. And I truly believe in it. And by the way, the reason why, and I, this is another very interesting point that I'd like to make. According to Angelica, according to A24, our distributors, this is a record-breaking uh, definitely a record in the making here because never ever there's been so many from Jews, and I mean yeshivish from Lakewood and Hasidim from Barapak, who actually are attending movie theater. Right. And we've had Mincha Minyanim following the screenings right there in the hallway. It's and, a, yeah. It's a different world. It's a more open world, and people are ready to explore it. Right, and and think about this movie in particular, and that's why we feel confident with the Hasidic communities, and even with New Square. It's not throwing trash at right. New Square or the Hasidic community. It's showing the positive traits of it. He's not leaving the fold, and he's not portraying 
the Hasidim as money laundering or other uh, kind of people. Right. He's just a human being trying to, you know, survive his um, daily routine. Yeah, but the average American, I would have to think, and again, we don't want to reveal too much here, but the average American, I would have to think, would feel that Menashe was dealt with unfairly by his community, right? You'd have, you'd have to think, you know, objectively, any American sitting in the theater is going to think that 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 the community is mistreating him. Would you agree with that? I agree with it. But and and looking at Menashe, what would another person do? He would, you know, as they say, go off the derech, leave the fold. Shave his beard, but no, Menashe stays in the community. Right. By the way, I made I made that point over dinner last night. I made that point after the movie that you certainly could have gone in that direction, but you did not, which I thought was great. And that's for me the inspiration of the movie, right. despite being being treated unfairly. And yeah, some of them and people in that situation are treated unfairly, unfortunately. Right. In these communities, he still he has such a strong faith, and faith. You know, he doesn't need anyone. Yeah. And yeah. It reminded me of well, what some people say about democracy. You know, it's the worst system, but it's the best one we got, you know, that type of thing. And, and in, this right. ca- in this case, it was a terrible circumstance, but dealt with in, the, in what they felt was the best way to deal with it. Um, by the way, I, I noticed the soundtrack. You had a Hupka sock in there. <laughs> you, oh, had, you had Yitzchak Fuchs's Borough Park. Am I right that it was Fuchs's Borough Park in there? That's right. <laughs> and there was a very weather. Helfenstein, right? That's and, there is, and of course, Busha were uh, a lead on the trailer. Correct. Yeah, very interesting. You got a lot of good material in there. A lot of people upset about the ending, or not? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. You talking about the Mikva scene? I would say, yeah. And again, we don't want to reveal too much, but I would say right. that, that this very much went the artsy, cinematic, indie way of not really finishing the movie, that you really expected us in our minds to finish the movie. I want to know if people were upset that that's how it ended. Well, people actually loved it. I mean, this is the point where people actually feel that punch in their gut by that ending. And, right. and I'm not revealing anything, but I'll just right. say the beginning and the ending are the same. Right. And they tell the story. You're on the street in Brooklyn. You see so many people walking beside you. Who knows what story does a specific person have walking right in front of you, that Hasidish guy there. And you saw in the beginning without the hat, and then you see him differently. Right. You know, um, he, he's purified. He's better. And we had a peak into a few days in his life. Very interesting. Uh, were people upset in Borough Park as you were filming? Did that disrupt a lot Absolutely of life? Absolutely not. No? You know, we, we actually, it's funny because Josh Weinstein at first, was very uh, concerned about opposition during the filming, and I suggested he he makes a, he should make a sign, and we had that for the first few days until we see it, it's okay. And on that sign, we just wrote in big letters, Kiddush Hashem. So wow. If anyone asks, I told them, just put the sign up and tell them it's a Kiddush Hashem, and then they'll, uh, they'll be okay with it. And it is. It's a Kiddush Hashem. I'm curious what months of the year it was filmed in Borough Park. I was trying to get a perspective on uh, whether it was winter or summer. We actually filmed it um, not back-to-back over the course of two years. Wow. So, you know, a little bit here, there, spring, wow. summer, a little bit of the winter. Movies, yeah. are, movies are big projects, huh? Oh, yeah. What was the total yeah. budget on this movie? That I cannot reveal, unfortunately. But is it on the high end, or we'd be shocked at how low it was? I mean, you know, it, it is an indie, after all. Right. So, you know, it's a different budget for an indie than a regular uh, periodic film in Hollywood. Yeah, I got that. Uh, you have a lot of executive producers and co-producers on this project. How many of them were completely stunned uh, when our community was revealed to them? The, the one executive producer who came on board together with his daughter, I was shocked that he actually came in on board. Uh, you know, I would say he's one of the only Gentiles on this project. And yet he loved it so much and still is really Shepi Nachas. His name is Chris Columbus. He is the director of Home Alone 1, 2, Mrs. Doubtfire, Harry Potter 1 and 2. A big, big name in Hollywood. Oh, so Eleanor is his daughter? Eleanor is his daughter, right. Who herself is an actress on Harry Potter and all the Harry Potter movies. Correct. The fact that he just came in randomly and picked this, our little indie, 
the his movie, you know, he takes the movie every every couple of years was quite a, you know um, overwhelming, and um, he loves it. We're uh, we're in touch, and uh, he keeps on bragging about this movie everywhere. What was the premiere screening like? Big celebration. The pr- the actual premiere was at the uh, Sundance Film Festival, and that's actually when. You know, Menashe, who never watched a movie, obviously, growing up in New Square, never went to a movie theater in his life. That's when he watched a movie for the first time on the big screen, his own movie. And I remember sitting next to him, and he was in tears. You know, imagine that experience, your first movie, and you're seeing yourself on screen. He never saw the edited version. He just saw himself, you know, he remembers being shot here, shot here over the course of two years, and now he sees the entire result right there in front of him. So that was quite uh, an experience. Wow, unbelievable. How's he doing in real life, by the way? Is life continuing for him? Um, I'll just I'll just say openly over here um, that he's looking for a shitter. And uh-huh. if anyone... Uh, yeah, that's what I meant. I, I, was cu- I was curious if he's married or not So at this point. So he is looking for a, a second wife. Yeah, he's looking for a second wife. And if anyone has any ideas, feel free. And he's got quite a resume now, huh? Oh yeah, big star. <laughs> Although I don't know, in his community, it might actually it might actually be a detriment. Who knows? <laughs> I'm not sure myself at this point. Uh, very interesting. Well, I, I Daniel, I really appreciate it. Very, very interesting. It's called Menasha, Everybody. It's at the Angelica here on Houston Street. It's at a million other places. You could look online, and uh, I think you will find it fascinating. Uh, it certainly led to a lot of discussion once the movie was complete last night. I can tell you that much. Oh, and and yeah, and you and you and you said that he himself and Lipa both appear Thursday night, meaning tomorrow night after the eight ten showing on Houston Street. Yeah, and I believe together with Josh Weinstein, well, the director, the director will be there as well. And is Lipa? They've done this already at least once, right? They've done this Q and A Q&A at least once, right? Yeah, yeah, they've done it. And yeah. uh, is Lipa because we know how critical he can be? Of his hometown, so to speak, is he? Um, is he? How do I put it? Is he level-headed about the entire thing? Oh, he couldn't be happier. He actually came uh, about a week ago together with his wife, which is a national sister, and his kids. The screening at Angelic. Lipa's married to Menashe's sister. You there, Daniel? Yes, I'm here. Lipa's married to Menashe's sister. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Wow. You could have fit. Yeah. You could have fit Lipa into the movie at some point, huh? We actually wanted to, but um, he was busy with his studies in Colombia, and we didn't want to disturb him. So next time, I guess. Well, you think there'll be a next time? Will there be more movies like this about our community coming out? Oh, absolutely! I can tell you that I'm already working on another project similar to this. I think we kind of opened the entire market here for making films about our culture that would inspire others as well. Wow, very cool. All right, you know what I ask. Uh, you know, next time you have a, a, a scene with Menasha in the car, make sure he's listening to Jam and the Am. That's all I ask. Okay, absolutely <laughs> nothing. You got it. Daniel, <laughs> always a pleasure. Mazal tov to you and the entire oh. team. We really, we found it really so intriguing, much. and I'm going to convince my listeners to get out there and at least see it and to react to it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All the best. Film is called Menasha, everybody. Daniel Finkelman, uh, one of the uh, producers of the um, of the movie, and yeah, it's definitely definitely a great discussion starter. That's for sure. Whether you love it, don't love it, whatever the case may be, and there's plenty to love and a lot of stuff to to ponder. Um, it's a great conversation starter, and the ending will also lead to tremendous conversation. That was my conversation with Daniel Finkelman, one of the producers of Menasha. Uh, recently on JM in the AM. Next up is uh, Rabbi Meni Evan Israel. He is the son of Rabbi Steinzaltz. And we had an opportunity to discuss Rabbi Steinzaltz's 80th birthday, which uh, just occurred. And um, we spoke about some of the works that his father, Rabbi Steinzaltz, is responsible for and uh, what works uh, are being uh, released in the very near future. Uh, Rabbi Meni Evan Israel on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Wednesday morning, and uh, we have the opportunity to speak 
with Rabbi Meni Evan Yisrael. He is the son of Haravadin Evan Yisrael Steinzaltz. He is the son of Rav Steinzaltz. He's executive director of the Shefa Foundation, the umbrella organization that oversees all of Rav Steinzaltz institutions worldwide. He was born in Yerushalayim. Smichas from uh, Israel's chief rabbi, Mordechai Eliyahu, served as campus rabbi for several years in the Washington, D.C. area. And as executive director of Shefa, Rabbi Evan Israel oversees the educational initiatives that his father founded and directs the publication of all of his father's, Rav Steinzaltz's works, in cooperation with Koran Publishers. Rabbi Meni Evan Israel, a pleasure to welcome you to JM and the AM. Shalom. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, uh, our listeners, and we know that your father uh, just celebrated his 80th birthday. Happy birthday to him, and I'm sure you'll send our best. Uh, everyone's curious how he's doing. Well, he's doing, uh, as, you, as you might heard, he suffered from a severe stroke on December, last year December, and since then he's doing quite a remarkable recovery vis-a-vis his physical body. He's, he's, he's walking, he's functioning, um, et cetera, et cetera. His speech is still limited, but even there we see a huge, huge improvement. His uh, cognitive skills are there. We, he's already back in the office on twice a day, and that's not the way it used to be, you know, 24, 20 hours in the office and four <laughs> hours home. Right. He's here four to six hours, and he actually reviews his material. He has the ability to... Um, to sign them and to clear them to, you know, what he doesn't want in. And, uh, you know, he's editing them. He was always the best editor, and it's unbelievable work, and uh, we're moving forward. Well, he is unbelievable, and he's one of our favorite guests, and uh, please send him our best. So, I mean, it, it, it is almost impossible to believe how much he has already released when it comes to a commentary on Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat over the years. Uh, let, let's try to go in uh, some type of order just so people can understand where we're up to now at the time of his 80th birthday. The the Talmud Bavli, the Gemara, the Talmud as we know it, uh, I, I know that volumes, uh, assorted volumes, have been released and made available to the public over the years. I did not realize that either now or soon you'll tell us the entire Shas is going to be available to everybody. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about that, but the English, obviously, yeah. the Hebrew is available already from 2010. Right. We started the uh, operation in 2011, not really that far, not uh, far ago. We started uh, not long ago. We didn't. We started this um, operation of doing the English Talmud in English. Clearly, right. we're using again our great uh, friendship and partnership with Koran Koran Publication House. And we started, the first volume came out with the end of the last cycle of Talmud, which was 2012. And we are now in volume 31. Wow. Out of the 44 we're going to have, or 42 that we're going to have. It's available on Amazon, available in every Jewish store around the country. It's coming out in about, in pace of Dafyomi. So we're scheduled to finish it around more or less uh, the end of the year 2019. So the, Engl- so, the, the, yeah. the English Shas will be complete when the Before, seven-year seven cycle of Dafyomi comes to an end. Right. It's actually going to be, we meant to do it, again, because of my, uh, again, because of the way we, we, I planned it. It's actually going to be ready about six months ahead of it. Wow. So somebody want to join in for the last track date, he has the time, you know, if you want to learn Masechet Nida, which is the last track date, which is, Happen to be very popular because it's last tracted. Um, so you will have the ability to buy it in advance and learn it in even more depth and just you know regular daf yomi haste in the morning. All right. Talk about getting a head start in the next cycle of daf yomi. There are discounts, by the way, everybody on advanced purchases of the entire shas. Koran uh, is offering the Koran Talmud Bavli of Rav Steinzaltz all forty-two volumes. If you go to Koren Pub, K-O-R-E-N Pub dot com, there's special discounts on advanced purchases of the entire set of shots, which you could take advantage of. Harav, uh, many Evan Yisrael, Rav Steinzaltz's son, is with us live via telephone talking about the uh, Shefa Foundation and the um, the continued efforts by Rav Steinzaltz and uh, his team 
to um, uh, release uh, more and more volumes of Shas and other works. Um, th- so the uh, I-, I know that the Magid Steinzaltz Library, and I put it that way because Magid's the imprint from current publication that that your father right. uh, that your father's published under. Um, how many are out already? How many are under that uh, that label at this point? Right now we have thirteen books in English, of course, ranging from Hasidic philosophy to uh, mystical guidance to biblical interpretations, etc. You know, but on top of this, and just mentioned, we also do. We're now working on a commentary on the entire Tanakh in English, the yeah. Bible, the, the Bible in English, which also is uh, the Chumash going to go to print in February this year, in coming year, and the entire Tanakh will follow suit immediately after. This is the entire Tanakh in English, also um, going to be done by the next uh, couple of years. How many in volumes? Hebrew, we, how many volumes will that take? So we don't know yet, <laughs> but how many volumes? But the Chumash, of course, will be one volume like any other Chumash in the market. I'm coming with Rashi, colors, pictures, and the commentary. And your father's commentary will be in it. Yeah, absolutely. That is the that's the reason we're doing it. Um, how, what kind of team do you need for for a project like the Tanakh? I mean, how many editors? How many? Different scholars so it, and academics get involved in this project. Right. So it's, it's very, again, it's very peculiarly in- interesting. The team in Hebrew, as Mephala did, did all the work vis-a-vis giving 929 video classes about the Bible right. and about the, the entire entirety of the Tanakh, as we say. So it was much easier because the entire material was there. So the actual team is six people in Hebrew, not including my father. Um, in English, we have a team about 20. The main important thing is that the, the coherence level of, of writing, especially in Tanakh, and to be in coherence of two levels. One is the, the translation of the commentary, which is, you know, the English skills, this is the team who did most of the work on the Talmud, the cable. The issue is to get a translation of the actual Bible, not of the commentary, but the actual text of the, the Torah of Yim and Tuvim, that will fit also to the commentary. That is, that is the tricky part. And to make it, of course, readable, we, we want to create a Bible, a Tanakh, that will be completely readable to all audiences. So will the, Eng- so will, will the English language be very different than other translations and commentaries of Tanakh? It will be more modern. It will be more modern, be more readable. It's the same emphasis that we've been imploring and, and we pushed for the last uh, several years of work on the English Talmud. I want everybody to be able to read it. Right. It's the same guideline we're using in Israel. One of the biggest differences between our text to other texts in the market is that our text is written in modern Hebrew. It's meant for Israelis. For example, we're talking about Hebrew text. Mm-hmm. When I write in French, it's meant for French people or speaking proper French. We do English, the same thing. It's meant for people who be able to read it. It's not written in more religious or pious language. It's written really for the people, in a sense, by the people. It's much more coherent that's the emphasis we're putting in. We want to have it as coherent as possible. It's part uh, of the reason why we, you know, we're using, sorry, using this thing specifically with Koran Publishing because they are known for their amazing typesetting and the design of the page. So with the comfortability of the reading, the physical comfortability, we also work very hard on the comfortability of the text itself. Does your father do the editing for the English as well? No, it does it in only on the Hebrew. Only on Hebrew. The English team, the English team sits set with him. I mean, right now, um, throughout the process on a regular basis, and when they have issues of specific translation and specific commentary, then it goes back to him to make uh, you know judgment on it. Um, so this is again, we count on these people. The people are capable right. and they are. Harav, many Evan Yisrael is with us. Rav Steinzel's son. So the the. Um... What would you have done if you didn't find Koran? 
I mean, we've seen the operation. I've seen their their scholars sitting and working, and the editors and everybody. And you've mentioned it. Uh-huh. Te- well, I mean, this sounds like a really good shidduch, frankly. It's unbelievable shidduch. We we're very happy with the cooperation from Koran. Look, Koran brings to the world, as I said, at least two things, two segments that we could not have done before. One is their reach. I think they have much better reach than we had when we ran this operation outside. They actually managed to get to every store in America. They have to get to different venues in the United States, which is the main market. And also, as I said, the design and the ability to take a text was complex and, and not friendly, for example, like the Talmud, and make it very friendly, make it very, very um, consumer first. Right. That, you know, you have... When you look on the page of the Talmud, for example, in English, you can see that every page is divided into small sections. So it doesn't matter who you teach and what you teach. You don't have to go through the entire page. You can do a small snippet that will bring, you know, this thing forward. And I think that's a great benefit of Koran. I mean, the, the English Talmud team was almost 70 people. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's incredible. But again, it's our team with the cooperation of design and typesetting and image yeah. work from yeah. Koran. We, we talk about how different publishers have really made an impact on modern Jewish history. Sometimes people forget what Koran has done and what they're doing at the moment. Uh, they've really made yeah, an un- impact. Unbelievable. And again, I think we also, again, from our perspective, we only in the beginning, as, as with this year coming, our work, our institution, my father will be the first so I'll be the first commentator to do the full commentary on all the Jewish canon, wow. so to speak. The, you know, the Chumash, the, the, the Tanakh, the Mishnah, Rambam, and Talmud in Hebrew, of course, and hopefully that's what we, you know, of course, like any other organization, we deal with books, we fundraise for to create the Mishnah and the Rambam in English, too. But really, we will, be, we will become, again, with the help of Koran, with the distribution system of Koran, the first commentary to encompass all of this work. Um, the by, of mi- course, mi- singular person. Mishnah Torah in English is available already or not? Not yet. This is a matter of, again, like anybody else, we try to fundraise um, to, for it. It's a smaller market, smaller market right. uh, than the Talmud and Tanakh. Um, but I'm sure we will get there. We, you know, we have our... Uh, you know, our uh, our operation in, in the States is actually run from New York by the Owl Society. Now, more than happy to, somebody wants to help, we'll take it. Yeah, that's for sure. Anybody who does want to help, be in touch with us. We'll forward the information to Rabbi Many Evan Yisrael as they continue to fundraise to um, uh, dedicate and release his father's uh, Svarim. Harav Steinzaltz just celebrated his 80th birthday. Uh, pretty amazing. And uh, as as Rabbi Evan Yisrael just said, he will have produced, meaning Rav Steinzaltz's father, will have produced commentary on every single body of work in Torah Shebechtav and major works of Torah Shebaal Peh, the Gemara, and the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. By the way, you know, and we've had an opportunity to speak um, uh, with your father about this on the air. From your perspective, how would you describe his relationship with the Lubavitcher Rebbe? My father was a true chassid, in a sense that he really humbled himself when you see the video. I mean, now it's it's even more painful to see it because in the situation. Right. When, he, when he came to the Rebbe, he was a devout chassid, but there was a difference. The Rebbe's permission, so to speak, or Rebbe's Rebbe perspective on my father's relationship was that they are, he asked for his advice. In a way, there was same time when my father was basically told, "Speak freely." You know, I don't don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me what right. what I do, what people don't tell me. Tell me what you think. What is your perspective? Look, the biggest change in our life was in 1991 when the Lubavitcher told my father to change his name, change his last name. Right. This is incredible. I mean, you can't describe a, a closer relationship with somebody when somebody tells you to go change your name when your name is actually not just a, uh, your name is also your branding yeah and you know tells you to change it it's, it's a major i wonder why he did that of, i really wonder why he did that interesting well, 
I mean, he, you know, that's the benefits of a Rebbe. Right. He has his own, his own call. <laughs> right. You know, we, when, you, when you have a Rebbe, there's part of the benefits of, of having a Rebbe, which is, you know, physically, and, and Rebbe is no longer with us. But the, the, the notion having the Rebbe around was that, you know, when you had issues of life, life issues or things that you need to ask and, and ponder things beyond our abilities. And the father, you know, as we know, is a highly intellectual person, has highly intellectual abilities. When he comes and asks something that's beyond him, yeah. that's what we have a Rebbe for. Right, right. You know, it's a wonderful thing my father told, I heard several times, will come to ask for his financial advice, his business advice. Listen, listen, it's not my field. The rebel would say. I give you advice. No, my father, I heard from my father. My father said to me, no, this is, my field is limited to what I can help. I can tell Talmud, Mishnah, spiritual matters. Certain things when we don't know, we have to go to higher grounds. Yeah. And that was the rebel. My father took advice from the rebel from beginning of this operation even from our profession that even the in the hebrew our talmud pages and if you know not is divided to two right um and one one reason it was right is because that was the rabbi advice how to fit all the commentary and the rashi and prophet and the halacha and all the other stuff all the other little, little uh parts that we have in the text was said simply divided to two you know, it, it started from there. Interesting. The relationship went on throughout the years. I, you know, I was privy to some of these meetings. Again, I was very young, don't have as much recollection. Um, but I tell you one one anecdote, and this is when I was about seven or eight, uh, we were we arrived in New York. It was Friday afternoon. Came for a ufruf with one of my my cousins, and uh, my father told me explicitly that I remember very clearly. I don't want to see the weather right now. Friday afternoon, it was a bit uh, beyond my comprehension. And, uh, you know, we walked around Crown Heights. Then, of course, my father forgot that he told me this, and we walked by 770 by Eastern Parkway. And immediately when we come out, the Rebbe came back from the office to go back to his home. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and literally, they stood up on those stairs, leading to 770, and spoke to each other for a long period of time, right. just standing there. Right. As a child, it made tremendous imprint and impression on me. Oh, I can imagine. Just the rep taking all that time to speak to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the streets. We're about to go can- get by candy. Your father, your father to us, knows everything. And as you described, nonetheless, he goes to the Rebbe, to, uh, uh, went to the Rebbe at that point, to, to ask advice. Very interesting. Yes. Um, all right. Uh, I mean, the, ever, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, there was, I, he didn't, he, I wanted to, again, to just to explain it. He wasn't, it wasn't like he asked every morning. Right. How about, you know, wake up. Right. No, he asked when, like you were supposed to ask the red, but when right. we come on the issues of importance, Oh, don't worry. Yeah, knowing your asked. knowing your father, he knew when to ask. <laughs> That's for exactly. sure. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Harav. Many Evan Yisrael, his father of Steinzaltz, just celebrated his 80th birthday. If you go to Koren Pub, Koren Publications, KorenPub.com, there are special discounts on the advanced purchase of the entire set of uh, of Shas, uh, which will be complete in 42 volumes before the next Siyam Shas. And um, uh, Harav, Evan Yisrael, what's the best way for people to be in touch with you if they want to support your father's work? I mean, the best, best, best way is to go to steinsoft.org, okay. our website, and over there you have all the information how to support, to work, to do, see what we do more. And, of course, by uh, getting your hands on those marvelous books by Koren. Yeah, well, well worth it. Uh, Todaraba, thanks so much for your time. Please send our best, our best birthday wishes to your father. Anytime. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Wednesday morning broadcast here at JM and the AM at 20 minutes after 8 o'clock on this Wednesday morning. Wow, that was fascinating. Our Rav Meni Evan Yisrael, the son of Rav Steinzaltz. Rav Steinzaltz just celebrated his 80th birthday. Continues to improve health-wise, thank God. And um, if, if you want information about the books, korenpub.com, K-O-R-E-N-P-U-B.com. 
That was my conversation with Rabbi Steinsaltz's son, Rabbi Evan Israel, recently on JM in the AM. Next up, uh, author of a book on the anti-Israel bias, Alex Rivchin from Australia joined us to discuss this very sensitive topic. Here's that conversation on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, Alex Rivchin is with us live via telephone. He is the author of a book entitled The Anti-Israel Agenda, Inside the Political War on the Jewish State. Alex was born in Kiev. His family left the Soviet Union in 1987 when he was three. He attended Sydney Boys High School, went on to study law and politics at the University of New South Wales, uh, worked for a member of the NSW Legislative Council as a researcher and speechwriter before practicing law at two of the world's largest law firms, served as spokesman for the Zionist Federation UK, was awarded a prestigious Israel Research Fellowship to work as a research fellow and staff writer at a Jerusalem-based think tank. After five years abroad in 2013, he returned to Australia and joined the Executive Council of Australian Jury as Director of Public Affairs. He's a member of the Jewish Diplomatic Corps. Alex Rivchin, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. Great to be with you. I appreciate that. Uh, the Anti-Israel Agenda is the name of the book, Inside the Political War on the Jewish State. It, it sounds like a topic that many of us have addressed before, not to minimize the work that it took for you to put this together, uh, which leads to the question, why did you write the book? Well, look, I've written a great deal, as have many others, about various facets of the political war, about events in the United Nations, about the decline in support amongst social democratic political movements in the West, about events in the news media, campuses, and so on. And it occurred to me that there is no one single consolidated work which spans the full breadth of civil society, all levels of government, takes an international approach and looks at exactly how this political war has come about, what forces led to it, and how it's played out, by whom and to what end. But in a deeper sense, I suppose what motivated this, you alluded to my... Soviet origins to my upbringing, when you come from a place where our people are denied basic human rights, where we're subjected to institutional racism, and now living freely in the West and being free to speak up and call out this injustice, and that's what this political war is. It's an inherent injustice. It's an attack on Jewish rights, and I feel compelled to speak out about it. Um, are things much different today than when you were much younger in the Soviet Union, meaning the anti-Israel agenda, which we're familiar with and which never goes away, is it much different now than 25 years ago? Not really. 25 years ago is round about the time that it really kicked off. It was after the Yom Kippur War when the Palestinians realized that Israel could not be vanquished by force, that they set about trying to internationalize the conflict. And since that time, We've seen it played out over and over again in international forums. We saw the Zionism as racism resolution, which was really the entry of the Palestinians onto the international stage back in 1975. And since then, their agenda, their destructive agenda, has permeated through every facet of civil society. Local governments, town halls, state legislatures, federal governments, multilateral bodies, trade unions, churches. All that's happened really is that the number of councils, for example, that boycott Israel has escalated greatly, or the situation on university campuses has escalated further. But really, this war has been happening for a long time now. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with what goes on in the United States, and obviously we're much more familiar uh, with what's happening on this side of the world. Uh, the BDS movement and the campus movement, as you've just discussed, in that regard is, uh, is pretty hot at the moment. What's happening on your side of the world? Is it very similar? Do you find that basically what Jews on campus go through over here is very similar to what their young people are going through over there? It's worse here. Uh, it's worse in the United States. So I look at what's happening on the, on the U.S. campus, and it makes me shudder a little bit because I know that in 10, 15 years' time, inevitably, the same will be happening in Australia. But a lot of the trends are, are already playing out in Australian campuses. So... A couple of years ago, I took one of the contributors to my book, Colonel Richard Kemp, who commanded the British forces in Afghanistan. I took him to deliver a guest lecture at a university in my hometown of Sydney on a topic with no connection to Israel at all. He was there to speak about modern warfare generally. And within minutes, the lecture was stormed by anti-Israel activists with megaphones who accused Kemp of supporting child killing and genocide because of his support for Israel. 
and they shut the lecture down. And I know that here in the United States, it's basically gotten to the point where someone who self-identifies as a Zionist, someone who dares speak up for Israel and the Jewish people, will not be given a platform on an American campus. And that is just an appalling, deplorable situation. It's an assault not just on Jewish rights, but on basic academic freedom. So a lot of the trends are quite similar, and they're quite similar across the Western world. And that's really a symptom of the internationalization of the conflict, as I said. So what's happening here is happening in the UK, in European campuses. Sometimes it's, it's more marked and, um, you know, there's flashpoints at various places. But broadly, in the Western world, uh, the trends and the manifestations are quite similar. Alex Rivchin is with us, R-Y-V-C-H-I-N. He's author of The Anti-Israel Agenda, Inside the Political War on the Jewish State. One of the most valuable things about your book, in my opinion, is we're always trying to convince people, regular people, so to speak, how much of an influence they could have, whether it's calling into radio shows or speaking on their own local uh, you know, campuses or with uh, representatives of other religions, etc., uh, and just, you know, helping to, you know, getting the information out there and helping to um, take on these uh, uh, anti-Israel people uh, head on. Is, it, is this one of the one of the missions that you felt you were going to fulfill, you know, providing a regular person, so to speak, with the arsenal necessary to get out there and fight for Israel? Absolutely. Absolutely. This book, to me, every Jew, every friend of Israel should have a copy of this book on their shelf to use it to become a better advocate and a better activist. And that's why Governor Mike Huckabee has called it the most important book on Israel, since Alan Dershowitz's case for Israel. This is really, I view it as a successor text to that. And it's really crucial to understanding exactly what is happening in international forums, to understand why the media reports Israel in a certain way, the forces that brought that about, you know, why UN bodies pass certain resolutions. And this book really provides the history, the context, the facts, the events that are occurring, and it's really essential reading. But my hope is that it will go beyond merely the Jewish world. Um, I wanted to reach a mainstream audience, and this week it went on sale in Barnes & Noble. It's been selling strongly on Amazon. And I'm counting on the Jewish world to act as the base of support to amplify the message of this book and make sure that it gets into the mainstream as well. Alex Rifchin is the author of The Anti-Israel Agenda. He is the book entitled, I should say, The Anti-Israel Agenda. He hasn't authored the actual agenda. Uh, <laughs> he is public affairs director for the Executive Council of Australian Jury. Are you in the United States now? I am. I'm in New York. And if someone would like uh, you to address their congregation or their group or their, uh, I don't know, Israel advocacy gathering, uh, how, sure. can they, how can they reach you? Look, the best way is through the website, alexrifchin.com. And they can find my contact details there. Or the book's website is antiisraelagenda.com. They can reach me that way as well. They can also see all the buying options for the book, read reviews, publicity, and all that. It's all there. Um, do, you, do you feel that, and I'd, I'd love to you know, include some positive things when we have a conversation like this. Uh, yeah. Do you get the feeling that with all the, as much as we see the anti-Israel movement and um, how accelerated it's become, in this, especially in these days of social media, uh, do you find some solace? Do you do you get some nachas, so to speak, when you see world leaders, including those from Africa, other areas in the Middle East, Asia, etc., coming to Israel, uh, begging, quote unquote, for the Israeli technology, uh, trying to forge a relationship with Israeli leadership? Uh, is is that a hopeful sign for you? Look, it's very good, and you want to see Israel as engaged as possible with the world, and you're absolutely correct. They're turning more to Asia. Right now, Israel does more trade with India, China, and Japan than with the United States. It's exploring new markets in Africa all the time. This is great stuff, of course, but the anti-Israel agenda, the political war against it, is really waged in, in the Western world, and in spite of Israel's deepening ties with the East and the developing world, it doesn't really overcome a lot of the problems that are faced in the West. So it really needs to work in parallel, absolutely expand into those new markets, but it needs to address what's happening in the United Nations, in the media, on campuses, in mainline churches in this country as well, in trade unions, because it could find itself in a position five, ten years down the track where it's increasingly economically isolated in spite of exploring those new markets. And even more dangerous is that the next generation... The people who are on campuses right now or consuming social media right now, the only Israel they know is an Israel that is characterized as inherently evil, apartheid, genocidal, colonialist, 
and you think about what sort of policies that generation will then adopt towards Israel when they're in a position of power, and it's quite chilling. But I do see some hope, and I think it's important to note that. Things can change. So the United Nations, which was this den of iniquity for so long, seeing your ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, right. she has made a world of difference there. Yep. And she's done it basically by just speaking plainly and honestly and calling out injustice and double standards. And it goes to show that no matter how bleak things look in any of these sectors that my book addresses, it takes good people to stand up, speak the truth, slowly build support, and you can change things in a very significant way. By the way, some of your leaders, some of your leaders in Australia over the last few years have also been very outspoken and friendly and helpful in this regard. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Australia and Israel have a wonderful relationship that goes back to 1947, really. Australia was at the heart of the UN General Assembly resolution that recommended partition and a two-state solution at that time. Um, And relations have only deepened since. But we have much the same problem that you have here, which is that traditional bipartisan support, where whether you're a Democrat or Republican, Israel was not a divisive issue. That is now eroding. That's slipping away. It's happening here and it's happening back home. And as I said, it's the symptom of the conflict in, in international arenas throughout the world. The book is called The Anti-Israel Agenda, Inside the Political War and the Jewish State. We are highly recommending it. It's Alex Rifchin from Australia, who's the author. His last name is spelled R-Y-V-C-H-I-N. He's in the United States this week until Thursday. If you want to speak with him directly or have him come and address your group, you should be in touch with him, and you could just search The Anti-Israel Agenda, Inside the Political War and the Jewish State, or search his name. You'll see his website. Look forward to meeting you in Australia one day, Alex. Absolutely. Come visit us. It's a great place. Thank you very much for having me. I greatly appreciate that. A pleasure having you. Again, the anti-Israel agenda inside the political war in the Jewish state. Alex Rifchin here at JM in the AM. More coming up 10 minutes before 8 o'clock. You're listening to JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Alex Rifchin uh, about his uh, book uh, regarding anti-Israel bias. And that wraps up this week's edition of JM Rewind. Thank you so much for listening. JM Rewind starts at 9 o'clock Eastern Time every Tuesday morning. Make sure to listen each and every week right here at the Nahum Siegel Network.